ThreadUp, the largest online consignment and thrift store, is helping brands tap into fashion's fastest-growing industry. Find out why Gap, Reformation, and more are joining the resale revolution at threadup.com BOF. When you realize that this is a must-have for your business's survival, you will not hire tokenistically because you will realize that this matters. One of the things that has struck me most in, in my time writing on this subject is just the, the impact of unconscious bias and just how pervasive an issue it is. Who's making the decisions? Who is commissioning? Who is directing? Who's producing? Those are the people who decide who gets hired. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion, and welcome to the BOF podcast. This week, we go back to a BOF Live episode in conversation with June Sarpong, the head of creative diversity at the BBC here in the UK. June actually has a long history of talking about these topics with BOF. She came to Voices 2016 just before her book Diversify was published. And as you'll learn in this conversation with Robin Mallory Pratt, she has many observations, lessons, and recommendations for the fashion industry as we begin our journey to becoming a more inclusive and diverse industry. Here's June Sarpong, Inside Fashion. Hi June, thank you for joining us. Hi Robin, how are you? Good, thank you. It's nice to see you again. Nice to see you too. June, as I'm sure many of you know, is a very renowned broadcaster. Um, she has the challenging, but I'm sure extremely inspiring remit of, and I want to read this to make sure I get it right, of increasing <laughs> representation throughout the company, ensuring that the BBC's content reflects the public they serve. Hmm. I wanted to start off and just ask you how your career as a broadcaster and your experience, perhaps personally, evolved to you really understanding and expanding your sort of knowledge base in, in terms of inclusivity and diversity? Yeah, of course. Um, on a number of levels, really, um, Robin. I mean, the first thing is, you know, when you do the job that I do, my first job anyway, um, it's about connecting with people. And it's about finding common ground um, with people who perhaps on the face of it, it would seem you have nothing in common with. But there's that sweet spot when the walls come down and you find something that you can just both latch onto and have a sort of a meaningful exchange. And when you interview people for a living, what might take everyone else, perhaps, you know, three or four encounters, you have to figure out how to get that in a matter of seconds in order to ensure that somebody opens up and gives you the best interview possible. So, so because of that, I've always been able to connect with people from all walks of life and, and get on with more or less anyone. Um, and I think that was a gift. And I think actually when you understand that there is a way for us to do that, you become passionate about trying to get as many people as possible to do the same. Um, and then obviously I'm a black woman. I'm sorry. I'm a black woman, see technology. Let me put the other phone on silent. Sorry, everyone. Um, Don't worry. Um, I'm a black woman. I'm a working class woman. And so, you know, I understand discrimination firsthand. Um, and so for me, I was always passionate about looking at how you level the playing field and make sure that everybody's able to contribute to the best of their ability, regardless of their background. Um, and then obviously I faced my own issues within my own career, particularly in media. And so it just made sense. All of those experiences meant that I wanted to create a platform 
to find a way for us to move beyond these issues, um, but also um, to look at how I best encourage my own industry, which has such a big role in terms of how we all see ourselves and how we see each other um, and making sure that that industry also um, gets this issue right. And here we are. And here we are. Yeah. Um, the, as the world has become more understanding or perhaps more aware of individuals, the complexity of identity has, no, it has not increased in recent years, but our awareness of the complexity of identity has, has mm. Um, I've had what I view as a, a big privilege in my role at BOF has caused me to have to sort of, you know, really work journalistically on some of these issues for some of the, the papers that we write for BOF Careers. And mm. as a result, my eyes have been opened as mm. to, you know, quite how little I knew before and quite how much I have to learn ahead of me. And I, I wonder, how did you go about that process yourself in terms of, you know, from your personal experience, that being evolved, you, that evolving into really understanding the complexity of yeah. identity in, in the modern world, especially when it comes to media. Yeah, for sure. Well, the thing was, um, when it came to writing the book, so basically what happened was I was filming a few years ago in America and a young man appeared on set who had, you know, tattoos and I made up in my head all of these ideas and, and assumptions about who I thought he was. Um, and he could sense my discomfort and it was the elephant in the room. And in that moment, I was able to understand this issue from the other side, um, as opposed to looking at it as being on the receiving end. And so that incident was such a light bulb moment for me because it made me want to figure out how we create a conversation around these uncomfortable, complicated issues that most of us don't want to address, but we have to address in order to make our businesses, our institutions and society all that it can be. And so I thought, wow, how can I talk about this? What can I do? And then fortunately, a dear friend of mine, who's now my literary agent, just got in touch out of the blue one day and said, you know what, you should write a book. <laughs> and I said, actually, this incident happened a few years ago. I was filming in America. I've always wanted to talk about it. And she said, turn it into a book. And so I thought, well, I didn't want it to just be anecdotal. I wanted to make sure that the book was evidence-based and also data-driven. So therefore, it wasn't about emotion, though, of course, that had an important role to play in that, you know, you need the qualitative data as much as you need the quantitative data. But I wanted to make sure that the facts were clear in terms of one, where we were on all of these issues, particularly the key underrepresented groups, and two, where we could be if we decided to change and what the benefits are. And so that meant that I had to learn it. Like you, I had to go and speak with the experts, you know, engage with people that have been doing this stuff for years, um, understand the data, um, and, and look at how to present that data in a way that would appeal to a mass audience because, you know, I'm not an academic. And so what I kept, and I partnered with Oxford University on the book, what I kept saying to the team at Oxford was, look, condense it down, condense it down. If I can understand it, it means anybody can understand it. Um, and so that was really um, the sort of the process. And then once the book came out, it sort of 
took on a life of its own where it then became a DNI tool for HR professionals, which was never really the intention, um, which I'm very glad it did. But it then meant that lots of companies started approaching me, asking me for advice and asking me to help them with their DNI issues, which meant that I also got to sort of sit at the coalface, as it were, and, and see where the problems lay and figure out ways to solve it. Um, so I just started working with a lot of organizations um, and then the BBC kept, came calling, which made sense because it was my industry. So, um, yeah. So I'm going to ask you what you asked the Oxford University team. Um, in your experience, you know, a lot of companies in fashion still don't really know where to start, especially yeah. given that, you know, relying on visual cues, you know, is just not sufficiently complex enough to, anymore. And, you know, that the standard has risen uh, appropriately. It can, from your experience, both in writing the book and working with Oxford, the data-driven lessons, but also from your experience mm. in the later consultancy period, you know, where would you advise companies to start or where would you advise them to get their information from? You know, is there any, yeah. any tips that you could share? Just yeah. for you? Yes. Well, of course, the first thing I advise is they all read my book because all the information is there. <laughs> it's diversified. It's a very good book. Um, but aside from that, I think the first thing that needs to happen is fashion in particular. If you look at what fashion is based on, and there's a real hierarchy in fashion in that, you know, you start at the sort of luxury end and then you move down to the sort of more fast fashion, high street end, etc. But it's based on exclusivity. It's based on the very opposite of what we're saying we now need or what we now want um, society to be in the sense that it's based on... Um, luxury and the, the very idea of that only a few people can afford x and that actually there is a preferred standard of beauty etc etc and so the very thinking of the sort of the um, dna of the industry has to change so you have to start there whereby people in charge, the gatekeepers themselves, start thinking differently. And I think a really good example of this, actually, um, is what Edward Enifel and Vanessa Kingori have been able to do at Vogue, in that Vogue is, you know, the sort of bastion of exclusivity and, and, and um, elitism. But yet they somehow manage to still keep the aspirational values of the brand but bring in a whole new audience that had felt up until now excluded by that brand. And I think what I would say to fashion companies looking to get this issue right is number one, optics matter. So who you hire really, really matters. And I would say it's important that you hire diverse talent in senior positions because you also need the role models. You need the people that diverse talent that is coming up can look up to but you also need the examples of leadership so that the majority group also have their minds changed about what a leader actually looks like um so the first thing i would say is hire somebody a few people senior uh from diverse backgrounds the second thing i would do is um, make sure that your teams all go on allyship training programs because everybody can be an ally so if you are um able-bodied like myself um, I can be an ally for the disabled community. You as a white man can be an ally for many communities. And I think if we all go on allyship programs, we'll understand the role that we have to play 
in ensuring that we create a much more inclusive environment. Um, and then the second, then the third, I think is really important to understand just what the value is so that whatever difficult process we have to go through to get there, we understand it's worth it. And that's where data really comes in. And I think it's important to know in terms of what it adds to the bottom line, but also to look at the way that social attitudes are changing amongst the young. So Deloitte has a fantastic um, study that they do annually, which is their millennial um, global survey. Um, and in that survey, um, they survey the thinking of um, young people around the world and they do it every year. And the last five years, the thinking has been more or less the same, but it's becoming more and more and more progressive. And what's happening is the thinking is now young people are expecting these things from brands in the way that perhaps my generation didn't and generations before didn't. And I think that if you're armed with that information in the same way that your industry likes to have trends and forecasts in terms of what color is going to be in season, what cut is going to be in season, you also know what so need to know what social attitudes are going to be in season. And are you in a place where your values are aligned to the way people are thinking um, and the way the sort of the future is going to think? Um, because if you're not, you won't survive. I want to pick up on, on all three of those sort of points, but just to start mm. with optics, both from internally and externally. Mm. You know, fashion, um, fashion is going through, a, you know, obviously a transformation from a, a top-down, you know, we dictate culture, but, you know, yeah. we in an ivory tower and tell the world what is, what's in it. Yeah. Um, you know, and for a number, I would argue for, you know, well over a decade, you know, for a number of years, um, the culture from outside of fashion has been informing fashion. As a result, we have, you see streetwear being adopted by luxury houses. You see a number of external creative collaborators being tapped for collaborations. You know, fashion's, you know, really tried to incorporate a lot of, a lot of what it didn't find within itself. And yeah. in that process, it has assimilated or potentially appropriated a lot of things. And, you know, as that the fashion industry has globalized, as the fashion industry has become, as um, wealth distribution has globalized, fashion has spoken to a lot of new demographics. And similarly, in a very uncomfortable, unbalanced and unequal process, yeah. it started incorporating a lot of those people. So when it comes to optics, how, how, what, are your, what are your views on how individual, how companies can both hire with a view to optics without, mm. um, but do, do so responsibly yeah, so it's not tokenism, yeah. And similarly, you know, in your role at the BBC, overseeing creative diversity, what's your view on, on you know, the, the trend of luxury houses to have supermodels drawn from each continent around the world and then depending upon the market, they want, you know, depending upon the market, they, they put the supermodel in or out, depending upon what they're like, you know, it seems very tokenistic. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the first thing in terms of how you hire, uh, yes, um, uh, optics do matter. And um, of course, we don't want it to be tokenistic, but sometimes it's better to have somebody there than nobody. Um, and really, it's important that actually when you are that somebody that's there, that you also do lead with your point of difference. Because you know, everyone likes to say, of course, I don't want to be hired because of the color of my skin, etc., or because of my gender or sexual orientation, whatever. Of course you don't. 
But the fact is, you know, in positions of leadership, chances are you are going to be a minority if you are in that position and you do come from an underrepresented group and you do, and you are somebody with a protected characteristic. So it's important that when you are there, that you also become a voice for those that are not in the room. And sometimes it's very difficult when you are the only one in the room, but I think it's important to still do it. Um, in terms of organizations, again, back to when you understand the value and you really understand the value as opposed to, oh yes, of course, this is a nice to go. When you realize that this is a must have for your business's survival, you will not hire tokenistically because you will realize that this matters. In the same way, you're not gonna hire just some random person because they can't do accounts because you know that your finances matter. So therefore you're hiring someone that can actually do your accounts, right? So in the same way that diversity and inclusion to me needs to move from CSR, which is where it's often been placed, to R&D, which is all about the future of an organization. And if you've got that lens on and you've got that hat on, there's no way you will hire tokenistically because you truly understand the value. Um, in terms of what happens with um, campaigns, whereby they sort of swap in uh, one look for another based on territory. I think there's an even bigger issue because often those girls, even if they are, you know, multi-ethnic and of course it's terrible when you have uh, certain races that are not used in certain territories because they have a preference for um, more Caucasian looks or whatever. Still, all of those girls still tend to be black and brown versions of the young, thin, white girls. And actually there's a big able-bodied young, thin, white girls. There's a bigger conversation to be had about inclusive beauty in general. And yes, of course, there is the odd where we will use a plus size model here or whatever, but it's still not the norm, is it? It's still not baked in. And so for me, I think that in the same way that we are uh, standing up for um, the sort of uh, uh, lack of um, ethnic equality, which of course is very real. Um, I think there's a bigger conversation in terms of the lack of equality in general, in terms of how women's bodies um, and women's ages um, are sort of excluded within fashion. That leads, um, leads me on to, to the next thing I wanted to pick up on, which was allyship and actually, mm -hmm. Um, we're in an interesting period in the industry at the moment in the sense that a number of brands have become aware of the shift in social attitudes. Mm. The Gen Z consumer has, you know, they are aware of it. The, it is, you know, they are, they are beginning to focus on appealing to or have, have been very successful at appealing to this demographic cohort and their preferences. But in doing so, it's very easy for fashion companies to adopt um, causes or adopt activism to in order to reach this group because it, it's a great it's a fantastic channel in order to reach them yeah. and to move their brands on and um, you know the bbc is almost in a unique position in the sense that it can support and be a fantastic ally to different sort of groups without that commercial undertow you know whether you had any sort of advice or insight from your time there and i know i know it's not been um been a amount of time but no. Well, I think the BBC has to be because at the end of the day, it's a public service broadcaster. It's paid for by the general public. It's paid for by the British people. And therefore, 
it needs to be an organization that truly reflects and represents the country. And perhaps um, in some areas, it, it hasn't done that as well as it could do. Um, and I think that, you know, for me and my team, um, what we're really committed to is looking at how we support and champion voices that perhaps have not been um, uh, welcomed at the BBC up until now, uh, or, or, or perhaps haven't even had an entry into the BBC. Maybe it's not even being welcomed. But they haven't had an entry. They haven't known how to access the BBC, and the BBC hasn't known how to access them. Um, and so we hope we can be uh, a conduit in that way. Um, and also, I think really, it's also very important who is behind the camera. Because often the focus is about, back to your model question, the focus is still who's in front of the camera. And yes, that matters, of course, because representation matters. We, you know, we all want to be able to see ourselves if, we, if we're fortunate enough to be able to see. You know, again, from an inclusive point of view, the, the focus is still always on what the majority group can do. Um, and so, so I think, yes, of course, we want to be a representative um, on screen and obviously on air as well. Um, but I also think perhaps the more important question is who's behind? Who's making the decisions? Who is commissioning? Who is directing? Who's producing? Because those are the people who decide who gets hired. And that's where we need to make sure that there are more diverse voices at the table, at the decision-making process. Um, and so that's a big area of focus for us. And how, when you um, perhaps, did, I mean, this very naturally leads to unconscious bias and, you know, mm. our awareness of the voices that haven't been represented or indeed fashion's awareness of, you know, how powerful an ally it could be to a number of groups that I'm sure, you know, none of us have considered. Mm. Uh, how, how do you approach or how have you in your experience approached coming across demographics or individuals or experiences um, that you were unaware of and, and going through, um, you know, the necessarily rigorous process to represent them sufficiently yeah. in, with sufficient nuance? Yes. And I think it's sometimes it's just also about listening um, and also being honest that you don't know. At the end of the day, I have an experience in that you know i kind of i took quite a few um <laughs> underrepresented boxes so there are quite a few groups uh, that i can uh, relate to on a personal level but there are still a few that i can't um and i think that actually if you don't have the experience there's nothing wrong with also admitting that and listening to those that do and i think often the mistake that people who want to be allies make is that they they try to tell those that are discriminated against how they should feel because they're seeing it from their perspective so they're like oh no of course this doesn't exist well how would you know it wouldn't impact you and i think that sometimes there's nothing wrong with acknowledging that you don't know and that actually what you can be is you can be um, uh, 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 a support system in that you bring somebody who does know to the table. So maybe sometimes the only thing you're there to do is make sure that that person is in the room and that person is given their opportunity to speak. And I think that it doesn't always have to be us trying to explain for somebody else. Sometimes let them do the explaining. 
And, and I think that's a really powerful way of being an ally. Um, one of the things that has struck me most in, in my time writing on this subject is just the, the impact of unconscious bias um, and just how pervasive an issue it is across every decision that we make. And that I think what struck me um, most recently, what struck me powerfully most recently was that it is impossible to be raised in this world without bias. There is yeah. no ideal individual. It is simply a matter of personal experience. You cannot experience everything that happens in the world. And as a result, you have to understand that you are going, you're coming from a place of ignorance and not coming from a place of experience. Yeah. Um, however, unconscious bias, we, did, um, we do a survey of um, thousands of fashion professionals every year. And the respond respondents, uh, very few of them, uh, less than 20%, I believe, but I will have to check that. Uh, had said that they had been trained in unconscious bias or had had mm. training to mitigate their unconscious bias. Mm. There's a number of famous examples like the Philharmonic Orchestra, where when they started doing blind auditions, the number of women that were admitted. Went up, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, how and with that as well, didn't they have to take off the shoes? Because at first, they, it still wasn't changing because obviously you could tell from the shoes whether it was a man or a woman. I didn't know that. And then, yeah, and then they were like, why is this not changing? And then they removed the shoes and that's when you saw the change. Amazing. Mm. And, well, how, how um, in your experience, what's the most effective way of um, enabling allies in an organization to share the importance of real diversity and inclusivity training? And yeah. To draw attention to unconscious yeah. bias. It's no one's, no one's fault, but it has to be. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a brilliant question. Um, and that's a true allies question. So well done you, Robin. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the first thing is making people aware in terms of what the default position is. Because when you're from the majority group, you don't realize that default position because it's just you. So you're not going to notice. And I think if you can give a few examples, you know, one of my colleagues has a really good exercise that she does before sort of our big culture sessions. I'll, I'll send it to you actually. You should use it for your team. And what she does is she asks all the participants to imagine their morning commute to work, though no one's doing that right now. Oh, but to imagine their morning commute to work. And she says things like, um, the taxi is late, the taxi driver's late picking you up, the um, station announcer says uh, the, the train has arrived. You see uh, a business, um, two people having a business meeting, you see a couple in an embrace. And then she asks you after to, remember who you associated with what. And so most people will assume that the taxi driver is a person of color, most likely an immigrant. Most people assume that the business, the two people having a business meeting are two white men. Most people assume that the couple in an embrace are straight. And so once you realize what your default positions are, you then know that every time that default position is challenged or questioned, there's going to be a part of you that resists that because we've all been conditioned to see things a certain way. And it takes a level of emotional intelligence and it takes a level of willingness to actually want to push through your resistance and to challenge yourself to say, hang on a minute, why shouldn't this person that's come into my office um, 
that is saying they want X job or X money or whatever, they're raising, they're fundraising, but yet they don't fit the mold of what I think an entrepreneur looks like. Why do I not think that person can do the job? And I think it's really about challenging those default positions. So I'll definitely send you that exercise because we found it to be very effective. Please do, please do. Mm. Um, the data-driven um, insights that the book and your, your further research has given you um, as to the value of actually having diverse organizations, not just yeah. online, not just in society, but you know, there's, a, there's a host of benefits we have. And one thing I find really striking um, we were doing some work in gender and um, of all of the sustainable development goals by the UN, there's only one goal which will impact all of the others. And, and that, that's five. The, that's yeah. five, yeah. which I just thought yeah. was such an incredibly sort of impactful um, mm. thing to recognize. But how, um, when you think about the value, how, how, what, what is the most um, impactful way you can describe the benefits of actually creating diverse organizations? Oh. Or, totally. I mean, I think at the end of the day, the way we should look at this is any, even the most novice investor knows that the best way to safeguard your investment is to diversify your portfolio, right? That any novice investor knows that. So why would we assume that this is any different for people? Why would we assume that only a tiny group of society is able to actually contribute to the best of their ability. And what I would also say to that is, we've done quite well actually in only really nurturing the talents of a very small group. Can you imagine the innovation and the breakthroughs that would happen in society if we applied that same approach and philosophy to everybody else. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the, 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 the innovations that have not even been created yet? You know, we might find a cure for cancer. It might be one of these children that we are leaving in a refugee camp somewhere in the world to just be wasted. They might have in them the, the answer to some of the world's biggest problems. And so that's what I would say in terms of why we should do it. And if you're a business, why wouldn't you want to be able to fish from the biggest uh, pond possible for talent? Like, that's crazy to me that you wouldn't even want to do that. Have you experienced anything that is unique to the creative process in terms of diversity's positive impact? I just, uh, over your, your experience, both as a broadcaster and now at the BBC. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think, you know, if you look at the kinds of voices that we're now seeing uh, sort of arise, not just from uh, broadcasting, but music across the board. You know, if you look at somebody like a Lin-Manuel, look at that interesting take on American history, you know, combining history with the contemporary to create this amazing musical that anybody can connect with. And I think that actually, if we're looking at just nurturing talent wherever we find it, this is the kind of thing that we get. And so what I would say is where the creative process is concerned, we've only scratched the surface because we've ignored so many people and, 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 and sort of not created uh, a platform for more people to be able to express whatever they have within them. So for me, I think we're just getting started and, I, and I'm excited to see where things go because I know even for us in our organization 
we're giving opportunities to writers and directors who wouldn't perhaps not have had that opportunity in the past. So it's exciting. You know, if you look at something like Noughts and Crosses, young, young, very young black director, you know, they took a chance. Look how great that show is and how well it's done for the BBC in helping us get a young audience. So, yeah. Um, I, I'm going to ask a question from our um, community um, in mm. just a couple of minutes to, to um, mm. close the session. But before I do, I wanted to ask you one question um, from me, which is what brings you hope? I, um, I know that we are living in incredibly challenging and saddening times but um, we have all been given an opportunity to pause and reflect and hopefully to create something safer and better and more brilliant yeah. on the yeah. other side of this um what yeah what, what brings you hope in that well what gives me hope is what you just said there i think that yes of course these are testing times they are unprecedented times but wow i mean we have never had an opportunity where the whole world is simultaneously in reset mode. And we have to use this wisely. You know, if you look at the sacrifices that have been made, whether it's the loss of life, whether it's our healthcare professionals putting their lives at risk, those that are working on the front lines, grocery store, checkout, uh, um, personnel, bus drivers, etc., cetera, uh, binmen, all of those people who are making sure that our societies still function, the sacrifices that they've made, as well as the economic impact, because we know once we come out of it, the economic impact is going to be quite severe. Um, that's gotta be for something. You know, we can't just go back to how things were. We've got to change and we've got to change for the better. There's a wonderful um, Indian guru that I'm obsessed with and I would recommend everybody watch his videos. He's got lots of videos on uh, YouTube called Satguru. And what Satguru says is that we should use this opportunity to become 10% better. 10% better, so 10% kinder, 10% fitter, 10% smarter. Just every part of your life, use this time to become 10% better at it. Could you imagine the compounded impact that would have on the world if every human being emerges 10% better than they were before? Um, and I think that's a worthy goal. Yeah, I, I much agree. Um, and it also segues um, very nicely into the question from our community, which is, how would you advise individuals who are passionate about diversity and inclusion and inclusivity to get involved, perhaps in, from a more career perspective, you know, in addition to leading employer resource groups or volunteering, etc. How can people start start a career in this? Yeah, well, I think if you're already in an organisation, um, I would go to leadership. Actually, I think it's a very good way of um, ingratiating yourself with the leadership in making sure that they know you are there. I think go to the boss and say, look, this is an area that I'm passionate about. This is what society thinks in terms of where um, uh, societal attitudes are headed. And I think we need to get ahead of the curve and we need to be prepared for this. And I'd like to help you do that. So can I set up some sort of task force uh, to work on this for the organization. And I think if you're able to demonstrate it for your company and perhaps get them thinking in ways that they wouldn't have before, um, you will be a very valuable asset to the company, but also you'll be a valuable asset in helping to move this agenda forward.
And are there any particular training organizations or qualifications that I know a number of companies are sponsoring individuals to upskill in this area now? Is that yeah. impressed you particularly? or is Well, Hive Learning do quite a bit. Um, their stuff is very good um, in terms of um, sort of, uh, e not quick, but you know, quicker accreditation. Um, and then the CIPD, I think, you know, that's the best for this country anyway. I mean, I think your audience is quite global, but, but for the UK, CIPD. June, thank you so much for your time. Is there a oh. message you might want to share with the fashion industry or a message of hope for our community? Well, I just think that you you have an opportunity to really, you know, or you, you, you shape culture. You shape the way we see ourselves. You certainly shape how we feel about ourselves. Um, and so if you can lead the charge and, and do what's right where this issue is concerned. I think it'll go a long way uh, to making our world a bit better. June, thank you so much for all your oh, words. It's always pleasure. a pleasure. Thanks, Robin. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. And don't forget to tune in to Be Off Live throughout the week. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, give us a rating, and you might be interested in joining the Business of Fashion's global membership community, BOF Professional. Our members receive exclusive deep dive analysis, regular email briefings, as well as unlimited access to our archive of over 10,000 articles, our new iPhone app, and all of the online courses and learning materials from BOF Education.